Welcome to episode 144, When Our Life Rules No Longer Apply, Clinical Competency in Religion and Self-Concept in the Face of Trauma, featuring Sarah Showalter Van Tongeren, licensed clinical social worker. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. My name is Beth Irias, and I am delighted and honored today to be joined again by Sarah Showalter Van Tongeren. She is a licensed clinical social worker, and you may recognize her name because she joined us with her husband, Daryl, uh, in 2021, early in 2021, talking about the science of suffering and moving forward. Um, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, it's so good to be here. It is. So why don't you take a moment and um, tell our listeners a bit about your background and how you came to have this understanding of grief and suffering? Yeah. So I always think it's important to sort of name where we're coming from and what's where um, we as practitioners, as therapists, um, what shapes who we are and what we see. Um, And so my personal experience with suffering began with my husband's brother's sudden death. Uh, when he was uh, 35 years old and had three young children of a genetic condition that my husband uh, could have. And for me, I was raised in a very religious household that described and uh, made sense of meaning in a religious way. And so when that tragedy struck, when suffering struck, um, and we can get into how I define suffering and all that. It was mentioned in the other podcast, but it's important to name it. It it challenged me in a way that actually unearthed spiritual spiritual and religious struggles. Um, and so our first book was on um, our, the courage to suffer and sort of how to help people work through suffering. One of the components we name in that book is how to help clients when their worldviews are shattered. Um, And so that idea that my parents had given me about God and religion and spirituality and how I was making sense of things, it no longer fit. And I was 27 at the time. Um, And in fact, it not only didn't fit, but it actually created more struggles and more suffering. Um, And so that's actually how I got interested in this topic. Um, And I I revised those things. And then we, uh, we had struggles with infertility. And then those new revisions didn't even fit. And then I think for me, it was a big, um, a big challenge uh, when it came to defining identity and who I am. Uh, And so for, my hope is that in all this at the end of this podcast, that therapists, people like me, we can begin to understand uh, suffering and struggles and grief also from the context of a cultural competency lens when it comes to working with our clients um, in the area of religious and spiritual struggles. Thank you for your honesty and transparency and what you bring. You've really made your career talking about these topics that many of us just kind of glaze over. And so I'm, I'm glad for the opportunity to dive into that with you. Um, as you're talking about this, what I'm hearing is the concept of an existential crisis. You know, how do we make sense of things when they are not consistent with our worldview? So for mm-hmm. example, a common one being that everything happens for a reason or that good things happen to good people 
or uh, that it's all part of God's plan. Mm-hmm. You know, these comments, these idioms that are deeply ingrained in different cultures and sometimes in our families and in religious systems. So then what do we do when those get turned upside down? And then how does that play out for our clients? Um, I'm, I'm glad to have this conversation because I've seen it in my work as well. When clients are challenged with this idea and then there's this uh, potential for a secondary a front that says they're violating their religion or spiritual beliefs by questioning yeah. this phenomenon when they're saying, well, that that rule that I had or what I was told about God or anything else doesn't make sense anymore. So what do I do with it? And, and then by questioning it, I'm doing something bad. Yeah. Um, so why don't we start by talking about what suffering is. And then let's also talk about what religion and spirituality are and what they mean in terms of identity development. Great. Yes. So we define in our book, the courage to suffer. Uh, Suffering is distinct in three different ways. Um, First, it's cognitively threatening. So it violates deeply held beliefs that we have about ourselves and the world, which includes religious, spiritual beliefs as well. Um, It's chronic. It's long lasting. It doesn't have a simple answer. And then third, it's consequential, meaning that it's fundamentally and profoundly altering. Um, That's how you know it's suffering. Uh, those, Those worldviews that we have are meant to alleviate suffering, but they often immediately combine with suffering uh, if it doesn't, uh, if it doesn't have a solution or an answer. Um, And so Uh, researchers have defined religion, I I like this definition the most, um, as the search for significance that occurs in the context of established institutions that are designed to facilitate spirituality. So it's the institution that provides the constructs, context and the structure for the spirituality. Um, And then the spiritual is defined by the search for the sacred. So it's almost like I like to think of the spiritual as how we make sense of the world. So suffering often creates these conflicts in our own meaning systems. And religion is designed to give us a construct for Mm -hmm. our meaning systems. And so when our meaning systems are threatened, when we turn to religion, the idea is that it would alleviate it. But as you named, um, I remember sitting in a pew at a church on Easter, um, just getting the diagnosis that I was infertile and that I was not going to have children. And people were shouting because it's very cultural in that church, God is good. And then the congregation shouts all the time. And then the pastor shouts all the time. And the congregation says, God is good. And I just remember weeping and thinking to myself, that doesn't seem right. (laughs) And really angry. I ended up leaving that church that day. And to be honest, I never returned. Um, I, for me, it was a big moment where I had to separate myself from these beliefs that were causing additional suffering for me. Um, And I'm not saying that that has to be everyone's story. It just was my story in a way. Um, you know, another disclosure is I'm I'm a recovering pastor's kid. So I was brought up with these beliefs since I was really, really young. And so it was so ingrained in me. And that's some of the things I want to talk about is the neurobiological effects, right? We're talking about conditioned beliefs over time. 
that live in our bodies. And so religious trauma, so institutional religious trauma looks like when we have to separate our mind and our body from each other, from our lived experience, when it's threatening the idea of what we perceive to be divine. Um, it's what violates our experience of our relationship um, of or with God or the divine. It can be caused by suffering. It can be caused by religious institutions. It can be caused by individuals. Um, and it causes the disconnect, right? That's where Bessel van der Kolk talks about trauma lives in the disconnect between the mind and the body. And that's what makes religious sort of institutions and spiritual institutions and practices so ripe for that. And at times, and we, we're, I've sort of lived through that, even in different congregations in different places I've been a part of, um, it, it's so ripe for a disconnect because we're talking about a disconnect of lived experiences. We're talking about right people that are gay, but that have gone to church their whole life and their identity of who they are is rejected. We're talking about people that have endured suffering and are being told God is good all the time. And they're thinking and sitting there being like, well, if I want this community, uh, then I'm going to say these things. And so they're disconnecting to be there. Um, that That's something that leaves us ripe uh, for religious trauma in times of suffering is a disconnect. And for some, again, I want to take it from a um, an approach that's really compassionate of like, that's survival. Um, we've been taught we have to do it for survival, right? So existential fears that we have that religion's meant to answer are fears of identity. Uh, who am I, right? So religion can provide us an answer. I'm a Christian. I'm a Muslim. I'm a Mormon, right? We can answer those things. Um, it provides us uh, with answers around why do bad things happen? Mm -hmm. uh, why do uh, it gives us that that groundlessness, which is um, what religion's meant to answer, answers those things. It answers ultimately isolation, which is a community of believers. So as you named Beth, if we are threatened and we're suffering and our experience is different than the people around us that are shouting, God is good all the time, all the time, God is good. And we're sitting there weeping and we're separating ourselves from our lived experience. And we're wondering what's wrong with us. We, even though we're in a crowd of people, we feel incredibly isolated. And so that's happening right, right even in that moment. And then ultimately religion is is defined is meant to answer the the death question, which is what we're the terror management theories. Uh, we're designed to to sort of explain that we're all afraid of ultimately what happens to us when we die. And religion provides those answers. As you're talking about your experience, knowing for our listeners how many may have experienced similar things themselves or also experienced it in their clients, um, my own moment of self-disclosure and, and recollection having been raised in the Catholic and Christian church system, that for me in California, it was in 2008 when Prop 8 was being considered, which was um, was a ban on same-sex marriage. That for me as a queer person and part of the community, that that was the last time I set foot in a church. And I mm -hmm. remember the day um, where right. I looked around me and I said, I, I'm not welcome here. Mm -hmm. And my people, whoever those people are, are not welcome here. People with yeah. my story, with my circumstance are not welcome here and I'm no longer safe. And mm -hmm. that that was an unbelievable 
moment of grief and loss because I lost the songs and the coffee after the service. You lost the rituals. Yeah, I lost all of these things that were part of being in that community and that Mm -hmm. that has continued um, in my life to play out in different ways that on Sundays, we we don't do that. And Mm -hmm. I don't feel safe. I don't feel comfortable. Um, Mm -hmm. And I appreciate you disclosing your own experience, but I think so many people can relate to that. Again, clinicians and Mm -hmm. clients alike, that idea that there's this moment of disconnect where you pull back and go, oh no. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And, and that moment is terrifying. Uh, so lonely and, and Beth, thank you for sharing that. I'm, I'm deeply sorry for that experience because that is, that is that religious trauma, right? That you said, even with us, even, and I, I say that that's part of what how I think it's so deeply related to suffering is because it sticks with us. It's not like you're over it. Like you've resolved maybe the identity piece and how it's affected in the sense of like maybe your religious beliefs or spiritual beliefs, but it's still that feeling of that instant. Like I still, I call in that memory of mine of that sitting in the pew and God is good all the time. Just thinking like that is not at all what I'm experiencing. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I, and I, I remember sitting there too, and and thinking to myself as the pastor was saying that all members of the queer community were insane, and mm. that they were lacking in morals, and yeah. that you know we the church could not support anybody who could possibly believe that same sex marriage was okay, mm-hmm. and that was just that disconnect that I think stays Mm -hmm. in our bones. And I'm always glad to talk with you (laughs) and and glad to have this conversation because I I think it is important for us as clinicians to understand not only the process is is potentially happening and has happened for us, but then how do we explain and create a safe space for our clients to explore this, to, Mm -hmm. to name it and, and try to quote unquote, resolve it. And we'll talk about like, what is resolution of trauma? What does any of this mean? Totally, totally. And I think the big piece that I want to also name too, is there's a really cool sake of religion researcher um, out there. His name's Lee Kirkpatrick. And in in 2005, he wrote this and I, I, it really has resonated with me. Um, He said, the idea that religion is broadly good or bad is absurd on its face. Like virtually any aspect of human experience and behavior, it is no doubt is both in in a myriad of ways and neither in other respects, it seems patently obvious from thousands of years of human history that religion can be powerful force in promoting either war or peace, mental health or mental illness, pro-social or antisocial behavior, racism or universalism, happiness or misery. And I've loved that so much because I, I come back to that and I think, yeah, for me, religion was traumatizing. Um, I have these moments that I come back to and I think that's, I've actually had to live in disconnect a lot of moments before that pew moment. <laughs> the pew moment was just when I yeah. snapped out of it and realized, oh no, this isn't, this isn't it for me. This isn't where I am. Um, and then launched a whole other thing, right? In the midst of suffering. But it, it's, I, I like his his research in the sense of like, it's just, it's trying to understand for our clients, helping us understand what about it was so painful for us. How do we understand it? How do we, 
how do we help our clients as they sort through this? And we need to be culturally competent as, as therapists to be able to, to name it, right? Because part of what, when people have endured trauma is, is psychoeducation. They don't understand what has just happened. And it's easy to blame ourselves for it. Um, and so I just really appreciate his perspective on um, that it's it's how it's used is important. And that mm-hmm. I believe that isn't that's true even in, in our therapy therapeutic process too. Um, it's important just as in we're working with any trauma that we don't re-traumatize a client, um, but that we have an attunement with our client so that we can understand their lived experience of what it is. Because for some clients, religion is going to be helpful. Um, and for some, it's going to compound on on their trauma. It's going to be a part of their story. <laughs> and both and both. Yeah. Yeah. And it makes so, it so complicated. Yeah, the complexity there. So you had mentioned kind of the neurobiological basis, the separation between body and brain or mind. Can you speak to that and explain that reference? Yes. So um, there's, so I'm a brain spotting practitioner. So I'm a certified brain spotting practitioner. And part of the things that I'm doing in my session is a somatic therapy related to to people who've experienced trauma. And so what happens as, even as you said, Beth, like, right, what you were talking about that day and you realized, nope, this isn't my people anymore. These aren't them. I don't know what's happening. You can still feel it and you carry it in your body. Things that happen that makes, I think, religious trauma rather unique. Um, one is that it's not only tied to a divine or a sacred. So there's a um, an external sort of like higher power force that's involved. But I think the other thing that makes religious trauma unique is, as I was describing, um, that's been true in my experience, is that it occurs over time in very small and unique ways. Um, and so I think uh, for me, growing up very religious, um, purity culture was a part that affected my own sexuality, right? Uh, And so the way that sexuality is conditioned in my body happened over time. So what we're talking about is when I was 12 and given a purity ring, we're talking about my view of sex was being shaped back then when when I was 12. And so as I grow and as I change, that is conditioned in myself over time, changing the way I view sexuality, the way I view myself, the way I view my body, and that we carry that with us. It's part of, I, I, I would say, the work I do with my clients when they're suffering. Um, and again, outlined in our book, it, it's when when suffering strikes, right? When you get, you're thrown into the darkness is what it feels like and there's a sting. It's actually all these layers, right? It's all the layers. It's how they were taught about suffering, right? Over time, we may experience clients who are actually not practicing religion in any way, shape, or form, but they still hold on to this belief. I see this with my clients a lot, um, that there is a one right way. And so if they were to do just X, Y, and Z, then this should happen. If they could just think a certain way, if they could just act a certain way, something will happen. That's religious trauma, actually. That's what they were handed at church is these set of beliefs and rules uh, will get you this outcome. Absolutely. If I if I do X, Y, Z, everything will be okay. Everything will be okay. And I see this even in my clients that aren't, again, attending churches. There aren't, they haven't, they haven't, they're not actively religious, but they have been religious. Um, I will plug some of my husband's research. He's doing some really interesting stuff right now on what's called religious residue. Um, and it's that typically um, it's psychological research has divided people into two camps. 
Um, we are also part of the problem in the binary construct, but in this idea of people that are ever like have been are religious or are not religious, and the, and he's sort of pioneering some research on the people that are formerly religious. Um, and so understanding that behaviorally, formally religious looks very similar to the people that are religious. Um, they still have this residue of belief in them. And again, this has some pro-social benefits, right? So they, they tend to volunteer their time more. They tend to uh, give more charitably. But they also have higher levels of guilt and shame. They also have higher levels of cognitive rigidity um, than the people that have never been religious. Uh, so there's what I hope today is that therapists can also begin. We're not just talking about present behavior, right? What, what's in front of us. We're also talking about the ways it's been conditioned neurobiologically over time, the way that it lives in their body of this one right way. Um, the other thing, the other cognitive sort of pattern I typically see with uh, formerly religious clients is they're also looking for someone to save them. Uh, so it lives in this idea that they are not autonomous. They don't have agency. They don't have change. Um, and, and that is really scary when we have suffering that's an outside force, right? Um, that they, they are waiting for something miraculous to happen. Um, and so some of the work I'm doing with my clients is, and, and I would encourage people to really think about, is to begin to, to validate the fact that these beliefs live in them their experiences, right? Validate the fact that they've had to walk out of churches or they haven't had to walk out of churches and they're still sitting there to understand maybe the trauma and where it's rooted in. If you're finding some resistance in clients or they're looking for the one right way, um, it's important to understand maybe there's something else going on there that's a deeper held. That's what I'm saying. Like the neurons are firing in a very specific way in a cognitively rigid pattern that's showing Hey, there's something there. Maybe they, I'm going to ask them, uh, and we and I can talk to you, Beth, about some practices that I do to make it a safe space in my therapy office as well. Um, because the other, oh, the other way it also comes out besides cognitive rigidity is also a fear of a, uh, abuse of power, and that is something to name in a therapy setting. Is that um, you know I always think it's important to our goal as therapists is to equalize, right? Is to, to show up and be equal footing with our clients to invite honesty and openness. Um, but what I see with some of my clients that are formerly religious is that there's a fear of disappointment of an authority figure. And it's important to acknowledge that to them, often the therapist is the authority figure. Um, and so again, the work is putting the autonomy back into our clients' hands. It's their choice. They, they get the the choice and the agency over some of the things, not all the things, right? Suffering does happen to us. It's how we choose to to live in it and live in a complex world. So validating their experience. And then I think the big piece with any form of trauma therapy is providing education around it. Saying like, hey, I listened to this podcast. I read these journal articles. This is important. I want you to know um, this is something I'm seeing and I'd love to know how it resounds with you. Um, and then the other thing I'd say is support your clients as they navigate this, right? So suffering exposes deep seated questions. And part of with these deep seated questions that religion often had answered, but maybe it's not fitting anymore. 
they're now navigating a spiritual process, maybe even a religious process. They're navigating, how do I make sense of the world? How do I make sense of the sacred if these things happen to me? If my kid got the diagnosis, if I have the diagnosis, if um, if I'm if my parent died, how do I navigate this? How is God good all the time? So they're actually navigating a spiritual process and trying to make sense of their suffering. And the role of the therapist is always to support that, never to drive it or drive it in a certain way, but just to offer the support for them. And then finally, something that I, I really, really um, think it's really important is to help the client recreate their identity, right? So circling back to how religion and spirituality often gives us sort of a set of identities um, and answering these existential fears is actually helping them recreate these existential realities in ways that's sustainable to them. Um, and they may not have the skills. They may be stunted in that because they they always were given sort of a, a concrete way to think about death, a concrete way to think about their identity, a concrete way to have community. Um, so they need help finding people. They need help connecting with places and spaces. Um, they may have had a concrete way of thinking about things, about why it happens and what's groundless in them. Um, why do bad things happen? Uh, they need help recreating that and, and reconstructing these ideas. And that's part of, again, I think the intervention of autonomy is that is something they can do. Uh, they just, they haven't had the skills to do it, haven't been taught it. Speaking as someone who's worked a fair amount with people who have religious trauma, I can hear the automatic potential for a good number of people, even in the concept of quote unquote beliefs, mm -hmm. that a word like belief implies that somebody else could believe something else. And that for individuals who have been marinating in mm -hmm. very strict belief systems, they are mm -hmm. not beliefs. They mm -hmm. are the word of God. Yes. Yeah. For some, for some religions, that's the language that's used. And so this mm -hmm. is not a belief. And mm -hmm. so even the idea of introducing these belief systems, like this is not a belief. This mm -hmm. is just the way it is. I'm mm -hmm. curious for you as someone who really has zoomed in and, and specialized in this and understand this, to expand on that idea of making a safe space when you mm -hmm. are working with a client where these are not beliefs, the use mm -hmm. of you saying belief, mm -hmm. belief itself is mm -hmm. offensive, is sacrilegious. Mm -hmm. Is Yes. Yes. Excommunicating. <laughs> you could be yes. excommunicated from your community. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you do? Like, what do you as a therapist do when it is such a deep belief system, <laughs> such yes. deep conditioning that mm -hmm. it has become very inflexible mm -hmm. to to even believe in autonomy, you know, particularly yeah, yeah. for many women that grew mm -hmm. up in different church systems to be seen and not heard, to serve mm -hmm. thy husband, to, to not have a job, to not um, usurp authority, all of these concepts that are deeply, deeply ingrained. Mm -hmm. I'm just curious. So you have that client that says, I, I can't talk about that. Like I, mm -hmm. I will go to hell if yeah. I talk about this idea. What do you yeah. do with that? So I, I view it in the same way I would view any kind of resistance or something I'm hitting with any kind of my clients, any kind of client's resistance, I'm going to actually align with them and say, how, how does it feel 
to have that reaction. Tell me more about that. I want to understand what is it like for you? What is your day to day when you think when you can't talk about it because you're going to go to hell? How does that feel for you? What's your experience? Again, wanting to know their own experience, aligning with them. Um, again, I, I view it as a place of cultural humility. Um, again, I think our work as therapists is to own our own shit. <laughs> it's, it's, I think it, that's what makes it really good therapists. And I'll say this, I come with a lot of religious baggage. And so my job is to sort through that on my own time, in my own places, in my own spaces, and to show up in therapy. It's to invite what they want to talk about in therapy in. My job is to hold it and to recognize, okay, this might be going on with them. This is a deeply held belief. I've hit something in here. I'm just going to put a pin in that one and see where it leads us. I'm going to ask more questions. I'm going to get curious. I'm going to get creative. Um, And I'm going to understand that maybe Maybe that is not a useful belief, but just like in any trauma therapy, we don't take away beliefs from people that want to keep them. <laughs> I don't care what beliefs they are. If they're if they are viewed as protective by our client, then they are protective. Um, and so it is it's from a culturally competent come way. So so one thing I do that most of my this has worked really well. I actually put a question on my intake form. Um, I ask them. When I, and it's sort of the section about identities, right? So I'm actually asking about sexual identity, gender identity, um, ethnic and cultural identity. I also ask about religious identity. Do you identify as religious? If so, I would love to know more about it. If not, and don't feel like disclosing, that's fine. Like, <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? Is this something, I, I what I literally say in there is, I often find this to be a helpful topic to talk about as a way to me understand how you're coming to therapy and how I can support you. Are you willing to talk about religious and spiritual, your religious and spiritual beliefs in therapy? Yes or no. I just put it up front on my intake form. Um, and if the client says no, then that's something that I'm not going to engage with at, at least, especially not while well, I haven't built a relationship with them. Um, and if I do see it something, if my assessment saying like, oh, this is a very rigid thing that we, we might need to talk about, I would then disclose and still give them permission if they're willing to talk about it or not. Again, part of it is modeling that autonomy. They have the choice whether or not to talk about it as well. Um, So even in that small little nuanced way can reduce some of that defensiveness. My goal isn't to evangelize to the the way that I've gotten. (laughs) It's not that. That's just me reenacting the same system, right? So like liberation psychology, it's like, let's create a new system. So let's create a new system where they're actually in charge of whether or not they want to talk about it or not. Um, Some really interesting statistics I wanted to talk about, Beth, too, that I think is really important, as well as I wanted to offer. um, There's a really cool researcher out there. Um, Holly Oxhandler is at um, Baylor, and she's doing some really cool stuff around clinical competencies when it comes to practicing and understanding religious and spiritual struggles. So uh, she has this really cool uh, religious and spiritual integrated practice assessment scale that we can all take for free. So if people are interested, if listeners are interested and want to take this religious and spiritual integrated practice assessment scale and see 
okay, is this an area that I feel competent in even talking about? Is this an area that I need to do some more reading, some more understanding, listen to more podcasts, um, talk with more people about? She has a really good baseline assessment that that we can all take for free. And that's through her website. Um, and so you just go to Holly Oxhandler, and that's spelled H-O-L-L-Y-O-X-H-A-N-D-L. ER.com. And maybe we could put it in the notes of the show if that's something. Um, and then you scroll, go to our website, click the resources tab and scroll down to instruments. And it's just right there. And it's free for anyone to take. Um, I got her permission to even mention it on the podcast. Uh, she's really happy to share these resources. That's why she does this work. Um, and she offers like a lot of just insight around this as a cultural competency. It's a form of identity when we're talking with our clients. It's something that shapes them. Um, and so she's really passionate about making sure that we're trained in those things. Um, but she had a really interesting paper uh, that I love to sort of get into some of the statistics. Um, and so this was a actually a paper that came out this year in the Journal of Religions um, by Oxhandler and colleagues. And they did a survey of almost a, a thousand current mental health clients across the U.S. 76% of the respondents agreed that a good therapist is a sensitive is sensitive to clients' religious and spiritual beliefs. 71% agree I would be open to discussing religious and spiritual beliefs in therapy. 66% agree my religious and spiritual beliefs are important to me during difficult times. So it's exactly what we're talking about. Um, she did another survey a few years prior that showed um, that actually uh, 82% of APA members believed that there's a positive relationship between religious and spiritual spirituality with mental health, but yet only 26% of respondents felt that it was uh, relevant to the treatment that they provide. And so what I'm trying to highlight is the disparity between our clients are wanting to talk about these things. And we know it's important in the sense of like, it actually can be used, like going back to the Kirkpatrick quote, it doesn't have to be used in a negative, it can't, it doesn't have to cause mental health struggles. It doesn't have to cause additional suffering. It doesn't have to cause these things. And yet it does. And our clients want to talk about it, but yet we're not talking about it. Um, and so it's important to highlight this as, as a cultural competency for, for our listeners today. I appreciate that framing and this concept that this is fundamental to identity and that we as practitioners or just as humans can't separate this out, that yeah. this is just that kind of marinade of, of what we came into the world with. Um, and that's not even mentioning the the impact of of things like epigenetics, you know, on, on how right. all this is playing out <laughs> one generation to the next. <laughs> right. So Sarah, as we're talking about this, we both come from this environment in Western culture in the United States where we were steeped in some varying degrees of Christianity. How do these principles apply to other religions when we are zooming out and not just looking at this idea of Jesus Christ or God or, or these um, very, I guess, European concepts about religion? Mm -hmm. Yes, I think that's really important to acknowledge, right? Like our own identities and where we come from, right? So me, as I was joking, but I'm also serious about a recovering pastor's kid from a fundamental evangelical background. Um, 
that is my specialty. That is the population that I work with. And as a cultural competency, it is much more complex. And so being able to, to recognize that the concept of spirituality is the idea and the search for the sacred. And that is not just limited to like European Eurocentric religions. We clients have uh, spiritual beliefs, even if they're agnostic, atheistic, they're trying to make sense of the world. Um, that's an important piece to understand. And so how people make sense of the world. So we're also, we could also talk about Eastern religions, right? Buddhist, Hindu beliefs, how people make sense of the world is going to influence how they view suffering, how they view relationships, how they view uh, themselves. And so again, I'll, I'll sort of go back to, I think it's a cultural competency approach that begins with curiosity, um, begins with, understanding and questions around how did that shape you? Where do you think you learned that belief? How was that framed for you growing up? How was that handed to you? Um, I, I, I want to say this. I think it's important as we work with clients to name our own background. That's one reason why I do it. And so when I have worked with clients from other religions or even like uh, other identities or even atheistic or agnostic identities, I become curious and humble in the sense that I have to check my own stuff at the door. I have to pay attention to when my stuff bubbles up. Um, I have a, sort of a theory as to why so many therapists don't want to talk about it. I think it's because in the same way, working with clients who are in the active state of suffering, can it's actually distressing to therapists. Because we, whether I like to name it or not, I've come up with my own new meaning system that maybe isn't rooted in fundamental evangelicalism, but it's helping helped me make sense of the world. And when someone's questioning their own stuff, it is going to bring my stuff out in my own self. And so paying attention to transference and counter-transference and what that goes on, that's a part of any good client therapist interaction. And so if I don't understand something or I don't know, because this is the identity that I have, I just ask with humility and build that rapport, right? Making sure that the rapport isn't something I'm necessarily leading with, but I'm I'm going to ask and, and get curious about um, how it affects them as well. You mentioned atheist and agnostic. How do those belief systems fit into this consideration? So we're talking about this kind of from the lens of potential religious trauma where this there are these many moments or this one big or many big explicit moments of disconnect mm -hmm. where there's kind of this um, loss of meaning and groundlessness where there's a loss of connection to previously held mm -hmm. rules about the way the world operates. Mm -hmm. So then we're faced with this potential deconstruction and reevaluation. But what mm -hmm. happens for people who are coming at it from the other side, which is I was raised without any religious belief, and then mm -hmm. XYZ happened, or lots of XYZs happened, and then mm -hmm. now I'm trying to meaning make as well. How does, mm -hmm. how does meaning making get shifted in atheist or agnostic belief systems? Well, I, I think in some ways, it, it's still a sense of the idea of what is sacred to them, how they're making sense of the world. So if, if, Again, religion is the institution, right? It's the context of places. So maybe there's not an institution that is providing or, you know, a manifesto of some sort, but 
they're still searching for the sacred and meaning systems within themselves. And so in the world around them, I mean, it's, it, it's a philosophy of how people live. It's a philosophy. Um, there's, there was a, a journal article in 2018 by Cohen McCullough and Larson, and they described, I really liked this. They described uh, spirituality as it relates more to someone's personal psychological interior life, meaning the quest to understand the ultimate questions of life about meaning, about relationships with the sacred, the transcendence, and how that is personalized. And so for someone that comes from maybe, um, again, sort of dividing uh, into these sort of different ways of thinking, right? People that are raised religious are going to have different constructs uh, than people that were never raised religious. And then you're going to have the formerly religious. Um, and then maybe you'll have the formerly non-religious, <laughs> right? So maybe there's these four groups and their way and their approaching is going to be different, just like any intersection of any identity. And so I would say it's coming Again, I'm going to go back to the curiosity, the validation of their experience, the engagement with it, and knowing that every human, I mean, I, I remember when I was in grad school, we were taught the biopsychosocial spiritual, right, assessment process. And I'll say for many years as a therapist, I didn't assess the spiritual. I didn't say, how do you make sense of the world? You know, what's what's your view on that? And I think, again, it's an individualized approach, no matter even if you fit in one of those four categories, life is such a spectrum. Um, and so I think it's even being okay that we want humans, we want these categories this way we learn, but it is going to be broader than, than what, than what even we know. And I think that's part of our work as therapists is, is being okay. And, and the unknown, and that's, it can be scary. As you're talking about this, an example I'm thinking about is uh, Karamo Brown of Queer Eye, talks in his book about his disconnect in the church and his struggle of how do I make sense of the fact that I find so much clarity and identity and connection in the church and also simultaneously feel unwelcome because I'm gay. And Mm -hmm. his journey to deconstruct and then kind of reconstruct and how he makes sense of it. And this... um, I, I, I really see any of these processes as kind of cognitive or mental Olympics where we yeah. try to put together these dissonant concepts. And mm-hmm. in my own reading of Karamo's book, also thinking about Bobby on Queer Eye, who has not really set foot in the church since mm-hmm. his experiences. Well, he, he did on an episode, I, I should take that back. He did set, <laughs> set foot in the church and talked about his experiences and his experience of religious trauma as a, as a gay man. And that these, um, here are these two public famous examples of a different relationship to religious mm-hmm. trauma. Can you give some more airtime, if you will, to <laughs> what religious trauma really is and examples of that? Um, because like my appreciation clinically, as I've worked more and more, it just goes deeper and deeper and deeper. So in mm-hmm. the, you know, the way that I view it from a feminist lens, from a queer lens, from a racial lens, all of these different pieces. So if you could give some more examples of like, what does religious trauma show up as? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, again, I like to define, I think it's going back to, it's a violation of something sacred that disrupts our experience of, or our relationship with God, the divine, how we make sense of the world. That is a religious or spiritual trauma. Um, I was even thinking about what you were talking about now, even having a few more minutes to process of when I've worked with agnostic individuals or atheistic individuals, sometimes the religious or spiritual trauma is the community members that speak about them uh, in a way that, you know, they're damned to hell. Even if they don't believe that even hell exists, it's still a, a communal, communal trauma because they're having to separate parts of themselves um, with their lived experience. And so again, how I see it a lot, um, I work with a unique group of, um, of even pastors. Uh, that's something I'm lucky. Uh, we live in a small town and a lot of the referrals I get are from a seminary in town. And that's actually how I was finding such a commonality with the clients I was seeing from the seminary who are pastors or graduates. So they're, they are pastors and ordained and, they're struggling because, again, one of my theories that's, uh, is that we as therapists get scared to talk about this stuff because it threatens our own sense of meaning, our own sense of control, and it scares us. Uh, pastors also, they, they question, they think, they, they experience so many other people who are suffering, and so it causes them to sort of begin to question some of these own meaning systems that they were handed and uh, thought they believed at one time. And so I've seen it as like a clinical example of how it shows up is even someone in their profession feeling trapped because their retirement is in the same thing that they no longer believe in. And so having to get up and present a sermon every Sunday um, or to care for people who ha- still have religious constructs that they no longer have for, that's requiring some protective dis- disassociation and disconnection. Um, that has had long-term effects in ways that they've learned to be du- duplicitous, even in their own personhood. With my clients is what I call the one right way, that it has to look, healing has to look a certain way, uh, Answers have to look for a certain way. And there's almost like a certainty that is wanted and desired. And again, how I make sense of it is that it goes back to, at least for this one client, ways in which they were handed certainty most of their life through a packaged view of religion. Again, this is unique to the, the area that I'm working in. But so when their child comes out as gay, when they get diagnosed with breast cancer, when all these things are happening and that package doesn't even work anymore, they actually are completely groundless because they've they've been able to bypass some of these struggles with a neatly packaged view of what it is with God and religion, their view of God and religion at the time. And so for them, this groundlessness, the search, again, that we highlighted in our book, the courage to suffer, right? So when it's this deconstructive spinning of groundlessness, it feels really scary. And the thing that was the comfort, which was God for this client, is no longer the comfort anymore. That then, talk about an existential crisis. (laughs) So being able to help them even identify what's going on, quantifying it and saying, your belief in God before looked this certain way and you believed these things. And now that you've experienced breast cancer and this this other question of identity with your child, 
you're now questioning your belief in God. How is that for you? What does that look like? What does that feel like? That sounds, it feels, it, I'm observing a lot of groundlessness and anxiety in you. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about how you were handed that view. And is that something you want to ascribe to? Is that something, again, like you've named earlier, for a lot of my clients, it's the first time they ever thought about belief, um, about the idea that it's uh, a set. And that's what I will do. I, I want to define that too, is how I define belief is a set of certain ideas. They can arise out of experiences with faith, but they're translated to concrete ideas. And so again, I, I will say this, we don't often realize we like have a head until we have a headache or a migraine. And then all we do is we think about our head and headache and migraine. <laughs> and we're very conscious of our head. It's the same way with belief. We don't even know the beliefs we have often until they're violated. And so part of this is sitting with our clients and helping them sort through. And I, again, being patient, it's not that we're trying to evangelize and get them to a certain point. It's just, we're having compassion. They're in the midst of suffering. And then now they're spiritually suffering maybe isolating them from their, that, that, that's, it's tragic for them. And so being with them in that is is the most important thing that we can do, not convert them in any way. We're not trying to convert them. Um, and what I like the, the definition of faith, there was, um, uh, I'm not going to get too much into it, but it's uh, Fowler has the stages of faith. Um, and it's a really interesting read when you talk about like just sort of different people's stages of faith that he saw in his time, um, in his career. And I loved his definition. Faith is a person's way of seeing themselves in relations to others against a shared background of meaning and purpose. Um, so faith is like the experience of life. It's bigger than a set of belief. It's almost like if we were to replace faith with sort of this idea of um, meaning making and sense making, faith becomes much more expansive than a set of beliefs. Um, and so I also like that when I'm working with clients is even helping them understand, because again, maybe for specifically the ones I work with, those have been packaged together, that these are the sets of beliefs that then give you this faith, where for them, it's even so empowering to realize, oh, what are my, what are my beliefs about that? What is, you know, in, in this part of the world that I'm in, in the upper Midwest, what's they call about it a lot around here in a very religious community. They talk about what's your theology of it, right? What's the set of beliefs around your set of beliefs? And so even just helping clients have the language of like, oh yeah, I actually didn't, I didn't know I didn't believe that God isn't good all the time, or I don't understand. If I say that, am I going to hell? And so then it's starting to help your clients parse apart. Oh, okay. So you have a belief, maybe you didn't know about it until this moment, until we articulated it, that even questioning if God is good, there's a fear of hell in there. Yeah, that's wrong. Yeah, that it's wrong. How does that live in you? How does that live in your body? So what you're doing, again, in your therapy session is you're inviting the cohesion of mod body and mind, because you're inviting them to say, how is that experience for you? What is that like? So for the first time, maybe for many people, they're actually beginning to put their experiences, their beliefs, their faith, their spirituality, and all of that together and in a very cognitive kind of way. Mm -hmm. You had mentioned dissociation, and I can see how that big ball of mess gets shoved into some little corner in our closet in our hearts, and that we just disconnect from it because it's so... Mm -hmm. Um, earth shaking to be faced with these conflicts. 
So when that bad thing happens or many bad things happen, how do we make sense of them? And then when there's that huge disconnect that, and Bessel van der Kolk talks about this in mm-hmm. um, The Body Keeps the Score, like that for a good number of people, we simply disconnect from them. We turn it off and push it away. Mm-hmm. And I think it's another conversation for another time, but this idea of then how do we as clinicians avoid re-traumatizing our clients when this dissociation has been so incredibly protective mm-hmm. for their sense of self and ability to operate in the world Um, Because Mm -hmm. these belief systems have allowed them to operate in the world, but now the rules have shifted. Mm -hmm. Yes, I I think that's the number one important thing to consider when you're working with clients, right? In any form of trauma, is we're not going to re-traumatize them. Again, I give them, my clients, the autonomy and power. The other piece I will say, um, somatic therapies are really powerful in that way. That's actually why I really like brain spotting is it is a form of therapy that requires very little talking. Um, and so it is all happening in the mind and the body of my client that I'm with. And so the more and more I do brain spotting, the less and less I stress about, okay, tell me all the details and what was it like sitting in that pew and when they said this and it, and it, it it's so activating. Instead, it's a somatic theory that, therapy that allows the activation and then the release and then the homeostasis of the body that is almost even a form of its own somatic empowerment um, because we do, we need to, again, all the beliefs our clients have, all the beliefs we have, they're protective. Um, there's a reason why we we try not to walk around in a constant state of a panic attack. <laughs> it's, it's we, we have beliefs that try to hold us up. And so with our clients and, and making sure we're not re-traumatizing them, that's why I always ask permission. And I even will go as far, Beth, as to say, even in my sessions, if if this something becomes so uncomfortable, I, I want you to tell me, and I want us to be able to acknowledge that this is uncomfortable for you and painful and so activating so that then I can know how to support you. And so then even then it's like, it's their permission to talk about it. They're the ones bringing it up. I'm the one providing the reassurance, which is a form of validating, which is a form of reconnection rather than disassociating. Um, it's, it's just, I think the other way that we as therapists don't give enough attention to is how many times are we modeling disassociation for, to our clients by ignoring the box in our client's corner? Um, how many times are we reinforcing that disassociation rather than bringing it up in a very gentle, kind, compassionate, autonomous way with our client and saying, hey, there's something I noticed again, I will only bring it up if it's something you are willing and wanting to talk about. If you think it would be helpful for you, I'm going to always give you the choice. And if at any time it becomes totally uncomfortable or so activating, then let's, let's, I want you to be able to share that with me. And then we can lead in some circular breathing exercises, some grounding techniques, but know that I'm right here with you as we're talking about it. Um, I think it's inviting our clients' boxes out. Um, and by doing that, again, I, I couldn't stress enough, by doing that, we're actually modeling connection of our own um, body, soul, and spirit. Uh, I have, again, I see a lot of seminary graduates um, 
pastors, people that have also their own spiritual and religious struggles. And uh, they taught me this really cool Hebrew word um, that I really like that's been really helpful for me. It's called nefesh. Uh, and don't ask me how to spell it. I don't know how to spell it. Just know how to say it. And it's this idea that in Hebrew, they didn't separate the mind, the body, the soul, and the spirit, that it was all connected. It's a personhood identity. And I think that that's a really cool thing as a therapist that gets to work with people and identify and help people sort of identify their own religious and spiritual struggles. What we're doing with our clients is we're caring for their whole nefesh, their whole personhood, um, the biopsychosocial spiritual components mm-hmm. of our clients. A holistic perspective. We as Westerners, yeah, we yeah. as Westerners have been taught to separate. Again, think about that. Again, the disassociation as we are in our office and we're connecting and caring for the nefesh, the whole being of our clients, we're actually, even that neurobiologically is healing that separation that they've had to experience for so long. You and I could keep talking for hours on this topic (laughs) and there would be so much more to keep talking about. Um, And knowing that we are about out of time for today. Um, I'm glad that we kind of landed and, and ended with this idea of dissociation and bringing back these concepts together into this more holistic perspective. As you were talking about even thinking back for myself, I remember as a young child at some point saying to an elder, to a family member, saying, so Christianity is really a cult then. And it was like, <laughs> oh, no. And it was like this very clear disconnect of like, yes. I said, or I, you know, my conceptualization of what's happening is now bad. And that for mm-hmm. however many years, I would not talk yeah. about those concepts. And exactly. that, you felt it in that moment, oh, even yeah. as a child. I did something very, very bad by, yeah. by making this statement or inquiring this way. Mm-hmm. And then fast forward for a client with similar veined experiences to have that moment in therapy where it's not, how dare you? But what happens if we actually make this a space where we can open up that box and start to Mm -hmm. uh, gently and carefully kind of organize the information that's in there. And with, with my clients, I've used the term going into the attic or going into the basement. Uh, And so, you know, is it okay if we go there now? And what Mm -hmm. I do and what we've done, we have different ways of acknowledging it, but so to light a candle when it's okay to be in there and blow it out when we need to leave or to ring like a meditation bell to mark going in and leaving because it can be so Mm -hmm. um, anxiety inducing, particularly for people who have previously dissociated in order to cope with these traumas. Mm -hmm. And I, and I've used that with religious trauma and with other types of trauma as well. But I, I appreciate these concepts and how you're lending this additional language and perspective to how we view this holistically and not yes. break it off into these categories and say, okay, this is over here. Then this is this is the intervention that we do to fix said problem. And that this is now, <laughs> this is about our personhood and how we operate in the world. Yes, exactly. Our, I, I think, I mean, again, I'm boiling down our job, but I get super excited and super passionate about this. Beth, if we can do that well, if we can invite our clients' personhood into our office and actually see them, in a way that we've done our own work and we're not judgmental, but instead we're loving and receptive and open. My God, how healing 
is that. What a gift we get to give our clients. Um, That's what I think about when I think about therapy and I think about spaces, specifically in the realms of religious and spiritual struggles, is these are often things that have been held in us since we were very little. And we have fears about talking about them and about, you know, I'm even noticing in myself, I'm afraid what happens if my dad listens to this podcast? (laughs) You know, I'm just naming it. It's like, oh, even just naming that is like, okay, I I can recognize that those are the conditioned responses that live in my bodies that want to mute and quiet parts of myself, but I can show up here in an authentic space. And so that is allowing full, full connection of my humanity um, and healing. Again, I think that's the cool thing we as therapists, if we can do this with our clients, if we can invite it in and do our own work to recognize when is it When is there unpacking the box, recognizing a box I need to unpack later in my own work? Um, That that's the important piece. It's not to evangelize and to give them our framework. That's ours. We're actually helping them facilitate their own organizing, their own framework. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you for joining me for this conversation. Um, For people who want to learn more about you and about your work, how do they do that? Yes, they can check out my website, sarahvantongren.com. And also you can follow me on Instagram and at the existential therapist. Wonderful. Um, And uh, as she mentioned, Sarah and her husband, Daryl, co-wrote a book called Courage to Suffer. So you can look that up. It's a wonderful book. Um, Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, This has been a enlightening and also challenging hour to sit here and kind of think through these concepts that none of this is good or bad. It it just is in this evaluation of what it means to be human. (laughs) So thank you. Thank you again for joining us, Sarah. Yeah. Thanks, Beth. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.